is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 9. And the song lyric of the day is by Turner Cody. In the wee-wee hours of morning, you bear your soul. In the jet-black places of midnight, your heart is a coal. We are leaning towers, we are cruel and evil cowards in the wee-wee hours. I told you I was dying, and you knew that I was. If I grow old, I'll be defying all the natural laws. We are whiskey sours, we are rubes with see-through powers in the wee-wee hours. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration, conversations with world-class musicians. Hey, welcome back. To Sound Heights Records. This is your host, Yisrael Arye. We're very pleased to present today on a conversation with a great songwriter, a good friend, very prolific and talented individual named Turner Cody. And Turner has been writing and releasing music for years. His most recent release is actually a compilation of his works from the last 10 years called The Great Shadow. And before that, also this year, he released a record, Duke of Decline. We sat down this past summer and had a scintillating conversation. This session is brought to you, as usual, by our lovely and talented Patreon supporters. Please join our ranks at patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. Now, please enjoy Sound Heights Records' special guest, Turner Cody. I'm very happy to have you here, Turner. Yeah, happy to be here. And we've known each other for a few years. Uh, more than a few. It's probably... Well, I just celebrated my 10th wedding anniversary, and oh, I met you... Mazel tov. Thank you. So I've known you for 10 years, believe it or not, because I met you, it was around, no, maybe not, but now it had to have been because it yeah. was when I was going to Abad Bank Halter and then we met you that night. So that was, I think around the time I was married. So it's been about 10 years. Right. So we met at the, the Chabad house, uh-huh. the Manhattan, uh, the Chabad loft uh-huh. on, on fifth mm-hmm. and and we have, I guess, in in the course of the ten years. I mean, I saw you a bunch then, and yeah. then we we've hung out a bunch since then. Mm-hmm. So, I guess we connected. You know, you're as a songwriter, you've been up to what you've been doing for. At that point, you were pretty deep into it. Yeah, I've been you're still pretty deep into it. Yeah, yeah. I I started in ninety nine two thousand. I I moved to New York to pursue songwriting. So. Yeah. So, it's so how did you end up with the Chabad? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> That's a long story. All right, so let's start. Let's let's let's, let's go back a little bit. So so let's go back. So just to give a, a I little, tell, I could tell the short version of the long. No, nah, man. Version. I mean, it depends how much time you have. I, I have time. I can tell. I could tell the short version. Well, I'll tell the, the somewhat short version. I mean, uh, the short version of it is in '04 we started. Um, we started doing the shows, a weekly shows in Williamsburg called Hasid Meets Hipster at okay. Art, Artland on Grand Street. Um, I don't know if you know the story of Curly Oxide and Vic Thrill. No, it's a don't. Story. Do you tell? Um, the story of, of that I, that as far as I know it, is that Vic Thrill is this guy, um, songwriter living in New York, and I don't know, I guess the 90s this happened? And he was living in Williamsburg, presumably, and he was, you know, observing Sotmars in Williamsburg. And he said, there's, there's a, this American life, I think about it. Um, he said something like, I want to, I want to know what, I want to meet a Hasid. I want to like become, uh, I want to, he said that he said a prayer or something. That's the story that I heard. But that, you know, he wanted to find out what it was like to get involved with the hostage somehow. That's the story. And then he gets, he meets this guy who's a musician named Curly Oxide and who called himself Curly Oxide. And they had this musical journey together. And the details I'm not, there is a This American Life about it. And there was, I think we always talk through the years of there being a movie about it, but it was a, so it was essentially like a bridging of a gap between a, a New York hipster, essentially musician. Um, I don't know if Vic would call himself a hipster, but, and then this guy Curly Oxide and, and Curly Oxide gained some visibility. And then there was some conflict with his family and he ended up, I think not pursuing music. Um, but it is a story anyway. So fast forward, 10 plus years Seth Bronstein as a friend that I had through well I'm going to that longer story <laughs> okay. he was a guy who used to hang around Williamsburg but he was on did he make he made a film Seth I don't think so okay, uh, that... he he was he was a kind of on fringe of Sotmar crowd and I knew Seth through another friend of mine who was an artist in Williamsburg anyway Seth was the Seth was the creator of Hosted Meat Sipster, and it okay. was born out of this. It was born out of this Vic thrill because they also knew Vic somehow, but I never met Vic. So anyway, um, it was born out of this effort to like bridge this gap, and it it for you know a, a good six months there was some like real vibrancy, and we would do it every Sunday at, at Artland, and um, a bunch of sophomore guys would show up, and I met. A handful of uh, characters through mm. through that it was it was a really interesting uh, experience um, and uh, ironically some some of the people that I knew peripherally through that ended up being um, I ended up knowing through other people that I met through Chabad and um, Ephraim's wife actually it was it was mutual friends with some of the people I used to hang around there mm -hmm. anyway um, Ephraim Goodman, the singer. Ephraim Goodman, yeah. Um, so, uh, where was I? Um, okay, so, coincidentally, maybe or not, at the time this Hasamid's Hipster thing was going on, I, start, uh, I started reading Torah, and then 
uh, th- 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 that's how I ended up at Chabad with Bank Alter and um, so that's the short version of the story okay. <laughs> of how, of well, how, how, do, I, how do you go from the Satmar to the Chabad Good question. Well, because there was never any religious component to that's why it was somewhat. Co- I said coincidentally, I started reading Torah. That's another somewhat different story, uh-huh. um, although there's overlap. But um, there was never there was never a religious component to the Hasimites hipster. Mm-hmm. I think for them it was like they were bra- branching out. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think of these guys were particularly well. I, I don't want to suspect what their motivations were i think they were they were seeing what life was like a little Mm. bit you know they're exploring anyway um and so there wasn't that there it was it was strictly like we were all just having fun kind of thing and there was a for people who were wandering off the street there was certainly a novelty to it Mm -hmm. because um you know uh for obvious reasons um so as far as Habad, that was quite a question of like you know my just reaching out to uh the, the well what what is the the most um the the jewish institution the most outreached and so that's how i kind so of so it was a separate it. thing your interest in in jewish learning was a separate thing from the involvement with chassids and hipsters or, or it, it, it was it was yeah it, but it was coincidental because the the coincidence being that the way i started reading torah was that my roommate uh was it all kind of converged in a, in a way i can't i i don't know it my roommate who was involved with artland and involved with the night he was deep in Torah because of a close friend of his who again like this is the kind of long and coincidental and boring part of the story not boring but I don't know exactly it's hard to know how it all unfolded but there was a period uh, suffice it to say there's a period within a year when we did Hasumit Sipster and I started reading Torah and then uh, quickly after that I got married and then boom 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 I met Van Coulter and, uh-huh. and and you so if that, if that uh if that's i don't know yeah, is that's that a pretty clear? good one. So is that, that clear or that's it, definitely clear pick <laughs> this up a little bit <clears throat> so okay so then, okay so that 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 and i think bangalore sat us next to each other because he was like oh these guys probably both like bob dylan and right and, right he definitely right connect, connected he us wanted and, me to you know have someone to talk to <laughs> so we weren't just lonely and, right um <laughs> All right, so so let's go back first. So where'd you where'd you grow up? Uh, Boston, suburbs of Boston. Um, yeah, uh, not too much to tell there. Um, <laughs> I never really had a strong connection to Boston, um, but I was a you know into art and always into music. Um, and I got into songwriting around probably age 15, 16. And when it came time for me to go to college, I decided that I would rather become a songwriter. My parents didn't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, I found I was able to move to New York um, because of some, I knew some people. I got a few. Um, I was originally going to pursue songwriting in Boston, um, but I had a chance encounter with a guy at an open mic in Cambridge 
um, in the summer of 99 who told me that I, you know, there was something similar to the song that I was singing with this scene that was going on in the East Village called Anti-Folk, the Sidewalk Cafe. So I took that tip and uh, pursued it. Luckily, I was, I happened to have been um, dating a girl who lived in New York. And so I was able to live with her and her parents and go to the sidewalk, open mic. And that's how I, that was my first kind of initial steps into music and songwriting and and that and that, so, was, so that was the fall of 99 that so happened. what was inspiring you uh musically at that time that you all of a sudden you decided to become i mean not, maybe not all of a sudden but i mean you, you met eric von schmidt in the green hills of cambridge <laughs> right <laughs> um well i mean i started writing songs because of you know i never i didn't uh anticipate that i would pursue music i think as a younger teenager but then um, it was really Bob Dylan that that because uh, I wasn't exposed to him as a younger person. My mm-hmm. parents didn't listen to him for whatever reason. He wasn't like a factor in my life up until like I was fourteen, maybe. Um, what did you first hear? I always listened to. I was always a fan of music. I always listened to um, uh, you know oldies and stuff when I was a kid. I knew all the old songs from the fifties. You know, and the Beatles and stuff. And then I was a period I was really into uh, show tunes, like Broadway songs. <laughs> yeah, everyone else was listening to Nirvana. I was listening to uh, show tunes. So, like what, yeah. for example? Oh, uh, The Music Man, Camelot. Oh, uh, classics. Yeah, the you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff. Uh, Do, were you interested in performing then? Yeah, I performed. I was an actor. And, oh, no, uh, yeah, I did musicals. Uh huh. I did, and I, I was into theater as well. So as you're a, a drama drama club nerd. I kind of told the line. I wouldn't <laughs> okay. say I was a nerd. I was <laughs> I was more like the bad the bad boy, the drama club bad boy. Okay. I prefer to think of myself. Okay, yeah, and, you know, <laughs> that that would fit better, I think, for you. <laughs> when I say prefer to think of myself, but no, I was yeah, I was um, theatrical. Um, so yeah, I, I thought you know the, briefly I would considered perhaps pursuing that uh, professionally. Or I was also into visual arts, but um, but yeah, then when I was exposed to Dylan for the first time, I felt like profound sense of um, a profound calling hmm. to the medium of songwriting. What did you in, first hear from Dylan? Um, well, I I guess it would have to be Greatest Hits Volume One, and at that point I was like Lord very strongly and then but it wasn't i I remember the when i first heard desolation row i was uh that's what sealed the sealed the kind of the deal as Mm -hmm. far as like if that if a song like this can exist something like this that's something that i want to do with my life Mm. as an artist again i was i was 17 16 years old so whether i consciously thought of myself as an artist or what um it was really like a magnetic kind of just pull of this is I had to pursue that thing more than more than anything. So it was. So as far as musical influences, that was like the fundamental one by profoundly profound one. It was really like the, um, you know the, you know, whatever. And then you know the got into Lou Reed and stuff, and so that was always there. But when I was, I would say that by the time at, at the time I was living in, at first moved to New York, I was still obviously in. You know, Dylan was like, you know, this thing which, which kind of cast a shadow on, on everything. But, mm. um, 
you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of music around that time, which we'd call like indie rock, like lo-fi music, um, which basically like allowed you to make records on an eight track. You didn't have to be the greatest musician. It, it was like an approach towards folk music that you would think of similarly as a approach that like punk musicians had, you know, 20 years before, whereas like the, the spirit is more important than the um, technique, and so the combination. I think what I was, I think what I was trying for, if I were able to express it, I and I think it was not necessarily like a. What I had in my head was somewhere between like some kind of Dylan Cohen approach, but yet with the, I think like aesthetic sensibility of what you'd call indie folk. It, so what is so what, how would you define that so you, you said anti, is anti-folk is that a label that's a record label it was no that's what they called the that's what they called the scene uh, okay. the sidewalk, like sidewalk cafe, cafe yeah. the, the, the movement if you want to call it a okay. movement I, I and you know. identify with that well it was that's I don't know if I aesthetically or it was simply that I there was a crowd that would always go to the open mic right and um, I mean it's still around there's still there's it's been 20 plus years of anti-folk around so how, how would you define the what does that mean to you to anti-folk well it's hard if you define it artistically musically is more difficult than than saying that if you if you played at the sidewalk between if you <laughs> you know if you were playing in the sidewalk um uh and doing shows there and going to the open mic with any consistency for any period of time and if you're social and uh, musical milieu was these same people, then you were anti-folk. And you could be doing any number of different uh, types of music. I mean, I I would tend towards the more traditional folk of of the spectrum of the guys who were, of the people who were playing there. Uh Um, But there was, there was avant-garde type music. Mm -hmm. I think that like you could try to draw a line connection between what everyone was doing, but it would be, it again would take longer to, to draw that connection. right well, i mean obviously to to describe all the music and try to boil it down yeah, there probably were, not there were commonalities but, but, I, but i guess the, the idea what you were saying before this the, the idea of, like the punk of folk meaning what so that, that, that was the idea so what is the so punk was kind of like an anti-rock and roll thing what is what what is the folk that was that was anti or is that kind of a tongue-in-cheek sure thing? sure well i mean it, okay uh it was usually acoustic guitars. So there were guys who took that the, the punk folk quite literally, and they would play. They were playing like essentially punk songs on an acoustic guitar. So okay. that was one type of. That was kind of the purest of anti-folk. Was just okay. A punk. They would kind of dress up like punks a little bit, and then they would have. But instead of electric guitar, they play an acoustic. So that was kind of like the literal interpretation okay. of it. And then there was. Um, uh, there was stuff that veered more towards indie rock, like Moldy Peaches were the most famous band that came out of the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were more uh, like on the indie rock tip. Um, and there was Doofus, which was um, really pretty avant-garde folk. Um, uh, so singer Diane Cluck was, um, she would be like m- more, maybe more traditional folk, songwriter in the in the vein of maybe a Joni Mitchell um 
And for, you, for you, I mean, you say you're doing a little bit more of a traditional folk spectrum. Was there yeah. anything anti to what you're doing? Was yes. there something that you were like, this yeah. I, I re- you reject? There, there, there was in that, uh, for the first like four or five records I made, I, I think that I was, um, it, what I was saying about a, an approach which was um, a, a lo-fi indie rock approach to not just performing it but also the songwriting also the production i think that that's what would have been anti to me in other words like i wasn't doing straight coffee house um performing and songwriting mm-hmm. i was doing some kind of variation on on it um you know in that like my songs didn't have traditional structures my um my songs tended to be pretty long they were packed with poetry um and my performing skills were were at i don't want to say minimal but i wasn't focused on skill in the way that like a punk singer wouldn't care Mm -hmm. what they were and and that was like the first kind of chapter of my of my music i think and Mm -hmm. the most naive and i'm not Mm -hmm. the one that i really i mean i don't really ever play those records that i made the records that i made at that time are not you can't really find them. They're on Bandcamp, but they're okay. not. I don't consider them part of my um, my catalog, as it okay. were. Uh, so it was kind of like my learning learning period, and then I, and then I became more, I would say, conservative and traditional in how I approached both singing, songwriting, and recording. So that was. Yeah. It sounds like it, that, but that something in what you're describing, to me represents a certain kind of freedom which is actually something that i i talk about um, in previous podcasts and and kind of a theme for me i mean there's there's lo-fi and i mean there's uh there's that that aesthetic versus you know something more polished but but in terms more in terms of the freedom aspect that Mm. whatever level i'm at whatever i'm actually doing whatever i'm going for it's not about the the external perfection of this and that i mean we could you could try to craft different aspects of things but really about tapping into something that's like some kind of energy sure regardless of of how it's packaged that you can that could that can come across sure yeah i think that um that's always going to be true i i however i would say that um in in all of art and in music specifically there inevitably are going to be uh rules and laws and that you, you want to try to find freedom within the law and mm. that, actually the, the well within the rules and that the rules actually the more seasoned one gets as an artist or a musician that you find that the rules that you thought were constricting are actually liberating so working within the rules i found um provides a greater freedom which is a strange irony that mm. it took me a long time to learn um so i would say that's what i would say where i how i progressed as a artist songwriter would be that to to um in that i gained like greater understanding of, of the nuances of the laws and mm-hmm. the rules of the craft that i was pursuing what would you say you were saying originally your song structures were untraditional would you say that you kind of continue to develop that or, or you more no, move towards traditional I, I, structures I, I took a i took a pretty quick right turn at some point um where I realized that I was 
pursuing something. I think that, I don't know if I realized it consciously, but I, I think that I, um, at any rate, I took a right turn. I took a 180 or a right turn. Um, and ironically, it was at that point where I, I, I think I could say that Dylan, as far as an influence, was actually t- took a back seat for a period of time in which I thought that I was maybe doing something new and when I was young and naive. And then I realized that it might have been new, but it wasn't all that great. <laughs> <laughs> and I would rather take a step back and um, focus on the fundamentals of the building blocks of, of what I was doing. And that that happened around 2005, I think. I, I started making what I would think of as like my first proper studio record. Um, and, uh, and at that point, uh, Dylan as an influence came back like tenfold and all of a what, sudden, what was the name of that record? It that was, it was called, uh, the great migration. I did it in Paris, um, with some guys that I had, that I'd been performing and, and, uh, collaborating with. Um, but yeah, as a, as a, and it was both as a songwriter, but also as a, uh, also as a, my approach to recording mm-hmm. changed as well. So I, I think that that kind of put me on the track that I've now been on for 10 plus years. So what was it about Dylan that in terms of uh, inspired you in terms of recording? Uh, well, as, as for the recording, I mean, uh, that record specifically, I was, I was been listening to John Wesley Harding a lot and mm-hmm. I just wanted this like dry, um, just groovy, dry record with great drum sounds and great bass and um the guy who produced it uh did a great job it could be you know we, we we were thinking along the lines of that record i wouldn't say that i go into every record i make with dylan lines as far as his records go right um although the one i made after that i did <laughs> what was that uh well actually I had two that i did okay. in, in that in that kind of maybe john wesley harding vein uh-huh. and then i was like oh well you know i want to do like a I want to do a live in studio kind of like, you know, it's silly to even say this, but you know, I was 24, which, okay. which was the age that Dylan was at when he made a great masterpiece called Blonde on Blonde. Right. My record was not a great masterpiece, although I was, you know, I was naive enough to think that like, all you need to do is to go into a studio and do everything live and it's going to sound like Highway 61. Of course it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it sounded cool. And uh, it was, that record was called First Light. Um, and one of the, actually the bigger hits that I had had came from that record. So somehow, in terms of of the attention that you've gotten, so you you made. I remember that. Um, no, you have some kind of a scene in France that that knows you, and how do you end up in France? Peripherally, um, well, you, can, I, you travel there. Yeah, on a regular I've done basis, a handful of uh, yeah. tours in Europe. Okay. Um, well, really, you got to, I, I guess, go back to the anti-folk. Um, basically, what happened was the Moldy Peaches took off and around 2000, 2001, and they opened a lot of doors for the other uh, anti-folk crew, as it were. They put out a compilation, um, and... So that opened, and and it's it seemed to it it took off in in Europe um, more so than here. Although so Mold- you were on that compilation. I was on the compilation. Oh. So that opened some doors, and then um, what's that compilation called? Anti Folk Volume One. Is it still available? Yeah, it's oh, yeah. it's somewhere. 
Somewhere. I'm gonna. By the way, I've, when we post this interview, what I'd like to do is we can, maybe you and I can go through and just get a because it sounds like your stuff is in different places. But you'll oh, yeah. be able to get it's links all. to... I mean, because you, you have old albums at Bandcamp. And, right. I mean, but, yeah, most of it's on Spotify, but there okay. are, there's, the whole catalog is on Bandcamp. But, oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So that's, uh, that's the place to go to... Uh, okay. If you want to hear the old uh, the, the, the old Turner Cody stuff. Okay. But I don't the want new the stuff is there, to too. The new stuff's there. All right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so Moldy Peach is really like kind of they they really took off and they were they were so great and like their story is a is a whole another one. Um, well, that's cool. So that was cool that they kind of took you along for the ride a little bit. Yeah, they, that they that did. gave you some yeah. open doors that that record the that compilation, compilation. Yeah, that that cool. that at least like I think it maybe convinced my my parents that I wasn't insane. <laughs> <laughs> that was that that was sufficient enough to convince them I wasn't insane because I did go to college for a very brief period and dropped out which just um was a double whammy but another story <laughs> um so yeah so the so i uh, think europe england and especially germany really kind of like uh they ate up the whole anti-folk idea mm-hmm. there's something like the germans found some romance in this idea that there was this club in the east village where people wrote songs and they and for whatever reason, the Germans ate it up, and uh, and the Brits to some degree. Anyway, so um, so the doors were open, and the a, a French band came over to the sidewalk, and I met them. And they were recording a record at a house where I was living. I was this was two thousand and two, um, and they we became friends, and I started going over there to tour with them, um, and at any rate, that's how I ended up going on tour with them, um, playing in their band. We made a bunch of records together. And then I did have a song in a French movie uh, years later, which, you know, so there was a brief period where, uh, you know, I was going over there like a couple times a year and it was it was fun and, you know, reasonably profitable. And I had, uh, I don't want to say I had a wide audience to any degree, but I had a much wider audience than I had in New York. So. Mm-hmm or in America. And so that's that was kind of a chapter in my life which was a, you know lucky I would say. Okay. Yeah. But then with, with that so that kind of that blush of of that kind of success. So that, I mean that, that you you'd say that kind of there was an ebb and flow. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing of, I was playing I mean really was that I was touring and playing with a band Herman Dune they were called who they had they were pretty successful and they were like mm. You could almost say like the pavement of France for okay. a period of time, and so I had kind of hitched my cart to their horse a little mm-hmm. bit. So I, by virtue of playing with them, I played to some pretty large audiences, mm-hmm. um, and then, so I, you know, through, through being in their sphere, that gave me a wider audience. And then by having the song and the movie put me on like some kind of map. And then I did a tour with Adam Green from Moldy Peaches in 2008. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so again, so, uh, you know, as far as establishing any kind of audience at all, it was, it was kind of through these uh, peers and uh, uh, contemporaries of mine. Well, so the, 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 what's kind of fascinating to me, um, and I think admirable in the sense that knowing you and just seeing what you've been up to and you've been making albums, you made a lot of albums, you've written a lot of songs and you, you devoted to the craft of songwriting and recording and performing. And it doesn't seem to be so affected by, by these ebbs and flows of, of attention. Uh, right. Right. So, I mean, I, I want to hear is that, that's my impression. 
But yeah. I, I mean, because obviously income sure. is is always an issue, you know, right, in right. terms for all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know you, you. Even I mean, I wouldn't bring this up unless you put it in your in your your bio and your oh, new yeah, album my, that you deliver pizzas. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you know, so. Yeah. What, what is what is, if you don't mind me asking what your you know you know how does that how does it what is how do you let me phrase it this way how do you see how do I how do I uh, well let me phrase the question is how do you frame your goals your your lifestyle goals your long term goals your devotion and commitment which is obvious to to being a songwriter how do you see that in in a, in terms of um, in terms of the choices that you make or that you mm-hmm. made, um, and what you, what your goals are going forward, or is it just to is it continue just to make songs, whatever the, the whatever goes on around you, mm-hmm. you're just going to continue to create what you create, or do you have a, a vision of, um, sure, you know, of a sense of your career? Because yeah. I'm I'm still getting you know, even though I've known, we've known each other for a while, and I've and I've checked out a lot of your music here here and there, and I'm I'm really grateful for this opportunity because this is inspiring mm-hmm. me to to take a deeper dive, getting to know you on this level a little more. Um, you know what you you have a lot you've done, yeah, you know, yeah. you know? and you, and you have a devotion to this craft, right? Um, but I, but what what is your take on that? Well, it's complicated. I mean the. You, you know, I have moments of where I get really down about about it, um, like any, like anyone who's not, you know, um, like any good artist. rich and famous or whatever. <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's like existential questions that I that I have, like like anyone, um, and specifically, you know, what the nature of my path will end up being. I. I uh, as far as a vision, of course I have one, um, and 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 it involves me, you know, playing at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not really though. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I th- there's you know I can answer the question in so many way different ways. I think the first thing I'll say is that you're, um, you can't. I I think in in the art field, like you have to. Um, maybe on some level construct the circumstances of your life such that um, giving up isn't an option. Mm-hmm. You know, like I didn't, I dropped out of college. I, I was going to like a pretty fancy college, which I could have stayed in the college and had a, a backup plan as it were. Right. I didn't. And I, I can't, I was 21 at the time, so I can't know why I made that choice. But I think maybe... The idea of, uh, again, like you don't, you know, don't look back, kind of thing. Like you have to, to pursue it means to pursue it with your whole, uh, you know, soul. Essentially, it so means I, that you you can't uh, any kind of commercial success can't be any. Uh, it it can't matter. It, it almost by definition has to be circumstantial. Now, I was 21. I would mm. think differently about it now. Okay. How do you think about it now? Um, that knowing everything I know, I could have been a little bit smarter. But then, like, if I'd been smarter, maybe I wouldn't have made the initial choice. And there, well, I Well, you're, you know, you're talking about, you just said don't look back. I mean, right, when you're saying you could have done it. I'm saying, so how do you, when I say I ask look, you, how do you look... Don't look, look forward. <laughs> well, how do I ask you, how do you look at it now? I mean, how do you see it now and, and and forward i think that i could have been smarter in uh a few ways both as more more specifically as an artist i think that like um uh 
I, th- I think, you know, I could have been smart, obviously, as an as a individual. I could have just continued with school and, you know, gained some skills. Mm-hmm. Some, you know. Um, but as an artist, I think I could have been smarter. I think that I was naive, uh, not just as a guy, but also as an artist. I think I was even, I was relatively new to songwriting when I started doing it. Um, Dylan says something really smart in... Um, the theme time radio hour he's talking about um um what is it uh, rockabilly mm-hmm. and he 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 says that you know rockabilly was this great kind of music and that there's a there's a new rockabilly resurgence mm-hmm. but the problem with the new rockabilly is all they do is listen to old rockabilly right when what they should be doing is listening to swing because that's what the rockabilly guys were listening uh-huh. to you should be listening to the music that your immediate influences were listening to not just your immediate influences so i think that like as an artist i was uh i was naive in that you know i wasn't digging deep enough into mm. the medium that i was trying to work in um and for various reasons i thought i could maybe not consciously but i thought that that was enough or i could get away with it um so you're saying that's different for you now Oh yeah, I mean I'm much more humble as a as I approach like the the, the medium I work in. Um, I also I don't think paid adequate attention to, um, you know on the on the one hand it was cool in that like I didn't care about I, I didn't care about the commercial world. I was coming you know we were all coming from a place in the '90s of like pop music isn't cool, you know that was mm-hmm. the that was the '90s like you know indie rock is cool now there's no such thing it's all pop and mm-hmm. and so i i do think like i was blindsided a little bit by the the tr- twists and turns that the music industry took hmm. um that being said i think i could have been i think it all comes to approaching what you do in life and as uh, an artist with just a degree of humility it's all about that um and i don't think i had like necessarily adequate degree of that um given for various reasons but i, I learned i learned it the hard way when you say humility you mean your willingness respect to, respect for your elders well are you talking about study you're, ta- you're talking about listening and, and absorbing a broader range of influences it sounds like uh not necessarily broader but deeper okay so um you know you you can't depart you can't find your own voice until you're until you've absorbed to some degree the 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 voices that inform why you wanted to start singing to begin with mm-hmm. you can't just start off as a neophyte and and have a voice or, or like as a painter like you can't you have to arrive at your you have to arrive at to whatever degree if you want to be an abstract painter you can't just start making abstract paintings you have to work towards that you mm-hmm. have to first make um one's based on life you have to learn all the building blocks before you can break them down or you can find your own voice so how do you so how are you doing that now um well now i've now i have skills that i can rely on so that's a kind of a you know as a as a guitar player as a singer um well i've i hope to i i've acquired skills so that's a part of my uh, approach um 
I, yeah, I, I know what works and what doesn't that I can do well and what I shouldn't do, which what I shouldn't attempt. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I have, so I, I've, I've arrived at like a degree of, I think, confidence in my, in my work. But how did you get there? So how, so just when you're saying, you're, when you're saying going deeper, you're saying, talking about the, the, the rockabilly example mm-hmm. of, you know, we, this came up recently, um, this, uh, other pod, this podcast, Drummers Resource podcast, is um, he talked about John Bonham, which is something how drummers who try to play like John Bonham often miss the fact they don't study what he studied. They weren't learning yeah. what he learned, which is swing drumming mm-hmm. and R and B drumming, and so they kind of miss a lot of miss the swing, miss the point. Mm-hmm. But the so, so would it would it be safe to say that because I I know I personally got a lot out of um, both Dylan's Chronicles right around it all came around the same time. Chronicles, the um, No Direction Home, Theme Time Radio Hour, um, all that all that came out. I was yeah. listening, I was uh, living up in Woodstock, and they they all it all had had this sense of Bob opening up his um, chest of influences mm-hmm. from books to albums uh, to movies. I mean, different things that, that right. he that he was influenced by. Maybe not so much movies, I don't know. but uh, well, he, yeah, a little bit. He mentioned Mighty Mighty Quinn, yeah. <laughs> but the. But the, so then you could go, especially with theme time. He'd play you a song. He'd talk about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Chronicles. He would go through music that influenced him, how it did, and yeah. um, and in No Direction Home as well. That they, they went through all these influences. Right. Um, so, but that's what I think of when you when when you talk about that going deeper, is going and, and starting to. And then that's why I say broader. Also, it's like there was a huge realm of music I didn't know about. Right. Until. You know, I, and if I if I'm inspired by this artist, I'm inspired by Dylan. Then his being influenced by that is really significant, and, I, and going and checking that stuff out. Right, right, right. And are you asking what what were those things? So is that me? what you mean? Is that what you you're talking about in terms of deepening your skill? Partially, yeah, yeah. That, um, yeah. I mean, that's basically what I'm what I'm saying. Um, not just the not just the act of doing that, or the act of finding new stuff, but also just the realization that you should be doing it that that you can't just start off on on mm-hmm. you know at at the can't start off you have to build up to something well, to, like for, to go so there's a couple of things cuz you've talked about songcraft and you talk about guitar playing skills so who who was it that you went to or like what how did you what process did you go about to turn your your making your guitar playing skill less of a priority to to increasing your skill was there a certain method in which you you took to do that? Did you listen yeah. to certain things? You learned certain techniques and songs, or did you? Yeah, I. Um, well, the the biggest the big step forwards for me were when I started finger picking um, as opposed to strumming. Um, uh, right. So when I started finger picking, that was big. That was like the first initial step forward. I continued to like to strum a guitar on records, but as a performer. Um, you know just honing in on that um and it was a skill that i'd always had i just didn't pay much attention to it because again it was like it may be like recalls a more traditional approach to playing and if i was trying to do something that was like punky or you're against that right i was trying to downplay that so um like my biggest influence as a guitar player has always been mississippi john hurt oh yeah i never it wasn't like I sat down and learned his skill or not uh, that I could. I Some finger picking uh, is something that I just always could do. Yeah, that's the greatest finger picking that. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> just so great. Um, it was a skill I always had. I never learned it. I never tried to. 
I I got better at it, but it wasn't so I've never like woodshedded my, right. my guitar playing. Um, so when you're talking about get, going deeper, you're just talking about more, more an attitude. An attitude, yeah. Rather than a certain practice. Yeah, the, I you know, just a, a state of mind, a realization of your own like mortality or maybe just an <laughs> instinct that you... you or maybe this, and the choice was as much a, a moral or whatever one as, as an aesthetic one. It's like, do I want to make like kind of sloppy indie folk or do I want to make like real proper mm. rock and roll records? I mean, the choice seems easy to me. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know what I mean? Being you in mean the sloppy indie folk, of course. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, you know, being in the studio is fun, uh, playing with guys, crafting something that's like both that plays to both like what you hear and what you see, which I think like great records do, mm-hmm. um, is just fun. It's a fun process. Why not, why not try to do it as, as well as you can? Um, and you know, and so, yeah, that again, like that was, that was a big turning point. As you, I mean, I think you yeah. you're saying, you know, one, one of the things that was common that I found commonly when I first came to Crown Heights and, went through a whole life life change and with Jewish observance and everything. And you can encounter a lot of, of these newly, you know, Balchuva, newly uh, religious people who grew up, um, had had whatever kind of musical background they'd had. And it was always occurred to any of these artistic types, uh, particularly the musical ones, that, hey, we can, also particularly the, the Rebbe's message about utilizing things of the world to... to um, you know, bring God into this world and mm-hmm. and, and spread Yiddishkeit. So what I'd always what I'd notice commonly uh, was that 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 they would have this concept like, oh, let me use music. Let me use music to first of all, I you know I love music. I don't want to be involved in it, but I want to promulgate this message. And then there would be, but then there was like an unwillingness for a variety of reasons. Um, but particularly in the religious context, a, a sense of hesitation of if I should dip my hands into, you know, that that sure. non-religious musical world. Mm-hmm. But then what would happen would be just this very surface, right? Exp- you know, someone would want to write songs, but their songs weren't that good because they they were not not just because of the attitude you were talking about, yeah. But also they were they were like they, they wouldn't immerse themselves in right. great songwriting so of course yeah. their songs aren't going to be that great there's a conflict in that in what you're talking i mean i think there is a a definite conflict between the, as for i can imagine that there would be i guess i'm going to say I, I think like it goes to a bunch of things i think it's deep i think you can find it in torah actually i think it has to do with like in addition to the the not wanting to expose yourself to certain things, maybe that are mm-hmm. I would say are potentially required. Um, I mean, there's there's the you know there's the tale of selling your soul to the devil, which is obviously apocryphal on some level, but there's also some truth to it. Maybe uh, there are th- well, how, there well, are mistakes. What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, I, <laughs> Because I, I associate the idea of selling soul the devil with a, a totally different, you know, that, that's that's more of, a, of compromising your values as a human being for for the sake of some kind of success. 
Well, success and maybe not commercial. Well, okay, I see what you mean. I, I think that... No, commercial or artistic. You, I mean, so yeah, there I are think it's the artistic one. I think it's like... Maybe that is... A, maybe right. Maybe there's a fear in, involved in well, that. Well, you know Johnny Cash's Walk the Line. Yeah. And, and the idea is if walking the line... The idea is like, for the average person, you don't want to walk the line. You want to be far inside the line. You, you know what right, I mean? Well, like, you don't want to have one foot in... Yeah, darkness and one foot in light. But well, like he, he was willing. Not only, well, just on that, that was like a great example, because Johnny, because the whole idea of of how we we we, we uh, a song has a prophetic element. Even secular song has a prophetic element that it really defi- ends up defining a person in a lot of sometimes very subconscious ways. And Johnny Cash, being married at the time to reassure his wife as he was embarking on this rock and roll lifestyle that he's right. going to be faithful to her <laughs> wrote walk the line which is funny because oh, okay. it, it, what you're saying what you're saying actually it has a, for me a new insight into that story because you know it, the song itself says it's not that I'm staying far away from other women I'm walking the line I'm, I'm between doing, being I'm, faithful to you and, and this temptation right. I, and, doing, and he ended up totally succumbing to right. it right <laughs> I'm doing just enough to stay this side of going yeah. over the line that's what walking right, the right. line means right right yeah well there's that so anyway so there's that part of it and I, you know again like you could go on with this one I mean well let me just, I, the, let me, the idea of selling the idea of Selling your soul is obviously like that's that's something I don't want to go into. Uh, I, I, not that I don't want to. I just it's so complex what that would even mean. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that anyone who quote sold their soul to the devil actually did. I don't think I don't. I don't well, think that's it possible. works well as a metaphor for right. for a lot of kind of compromises I, I think that a person it, I think, can make. Right. I think it means like. I think it means looking into a part of yourself, pursuing. Pursuing what we might call like the the darkness or the blackness mm. in uh, in ourselves and in and in the world and doing it with like holding a candle. It's scary, still, but right. still going there. So you have a candle, but you're still in a place that you don't you would maybe otherwise not prefer mm-hmm. to be, or that you don't need to be, and that it's probably wiser not to be. But, but mm-hmm. still, but having to having to do it because you come back with and the idea of the story was that like one did this made this deal um and you know bob refers to it in in the movie in the scorsese movie right you 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 make this deal and you come back with with skill you come back being able to play better than you were because you've broken through a you've broken through a, a certain um door of perception mm-hmm. so you're you have your fingers can move quicker you can hit notes that you couldn't hit because like you've located a certain um harmonic place inside of your um self that is a complicated <laughs> image especially considering yeah. you know i i would look but i mean there is a there's a very deep aspect to it let's say just in a benign way that at what you're talking about, this idea of when, when Dylan says in the documentary, yeah, that's when I made that deal. And, you know, obviously one level is tongue in cheek. Um, and then, well, then, well, then they had, you know, they, the, 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 well, other, the funny thing is that someone else is someone like, else, someone else, and right? He's like, and yeah. then he says, like, it. it seems like he made this deal, right? He, he appeared and he was playing like he never played before. Uh-huh. Um, so, but what you're saying, so on, on the benign level, let's say, whatever that deal is a metaphor for, for accessing a much deeper part of, 
oneself and and some kind of you know collective unconscious or something, mm-hmm. which is also referenced in, in that in that movie. Yeah. But the, then there's then there's of course the sinister part. So the sinister from like a like a religious right and wrong perspective. Like yeah. But then then there's the I think what you're saying that's resonating in terms of talking about these people identifying as being afraid to to delve deep. Like I want to write songs, but I don't want to I don't want to explore the darkness. I mean, this is a common theme. A lot of people talk about now this idea of, of you know the fear of of how it's important to face one's own demons. It's important to face one's own. That's how you grow. And there's this whole idea of safe spaces is is mm-hmm. uh, anathema to to growth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because and and so as a song as an artist as a songwriter the the. There, there's a natural unwillingness. There's a natural fear to go ahead and and explore one's dark dark side, but that the willingness to do that, yes, there are real dangers. But at the same time, it it, it can it's the only it can bear real real fruits. The only really worthwhile fruits are going to be come from that. Exactly. Yeah. If you if you hold the candle in the darkness, if you can come back from it, essentially. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, it not not only can they bear fruit, they they have to. I mean, I I think that. I think there's some reconciliation that. I don't want to say every musician or every artist, I can't speak for anyone, but that. Um, you know, there's some moment of reconciliation with one's mortality and the natures of the world that was that may be scary that you you need to like have and come back from um mm-hmm. to to find your voice maybe you know the the other part of it that on speaking to what you were saying specifically that i think gets overlooked is not in the moral component but one that is actually i think you can also find in torah that has to do with the aesthetics of art and music, the idea that aesthetics, aesthetics as a concept mm-hmm. is, a, is a tricky one as far as from a religious point of view. You know, obviously there are prohibitions against certain, um, against representing certain Im- things mm-hmm. is in images. There's also the, the story of... Um, I, th- I think about you know I don't know how right I'm at in this, but the, I, you know the the story of the three sons of Noah and the the gifts that they are each given and the gift that's given to Japheth is the one of aesthetics um, mm-hmm. or that like what a, a tradition that came out of I guess what we would think of as a European um, uh, artistic language and mm-hmm. so. And the question being is like, um, assuming that like this, assuming that like the the fields that we're working in being music and poetry and literature and um, and even visual art, all come from more or less a a, a um, European cultural language going back a long time. And so the question being like, what? What is there something that clashes fundamentally in a, in like a visual understanding of the world, versus a spiritual one? So it's interesting you, you bring so up the, you bring up that example. From, com- yeah, sorry. you bring up the example from from Torah. So what that actually gives the diagnosis the the conflict and gives the answer, in that in that 
That's what that I. Same, so yeah. so it, says, it says, you know, Yafis Ba'alei Shem. So the, the three sons, we have, you have Shem, who's the father of the Jewish people mm. in, the, in the, the Torah. Mm. Um, and then you have Yafis, who's a father, understood the father of the Greek people. Mm-hmm. And his name means beauty, Yafis. Okay. And then you, ha- you have um, Ham. You have Ham, right, who, who actually got. Um, uh, there was actually were, were some blessings in what he got, um, but he also got some anti blessings. Right. Um, but the, the in terms of the relationship between aesthetic beauty and you know what what Yafis have to offer, but the Greek that that aesthetic approach, mm-hmm. how in what context is it positive? In what context is it useful? As a um, as opposed to I mean, on its own, it has the potential to be completely narcissistic and morally bankrupt. Just uh, like you know. in, just like any artist, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, the idea of the beauty is truth yeah. is a lie. <laughs> you know? It is. It is from a spiritual. Okay, here's well, it the, is, here's it the is question. From a moral, well, it, it's beauty is truth is a, is a lie. It's a lie from a moral and a spiritual perspective. Well, how is it not a lie? It's not a lie from an artistic one, because. It essentially, it's the end. It's the end and the beginning of uh, the part, the um, the artistic pursuit. I, I I don't know if I would make that argument. I think I could though, because well, okay. art doesn't necessarily need to have. It doesn't need to have spiritual through lines. It can it be can. stripped of morals. It should. But I'm going to make the. I'll tell you that the idea of beauty is truth is. Is a, is a is a lie, and and not because not just because I you know I believe that there's a moral dimension that needs to be um, taken into account. That's not just that on account of beauty is truth is a lie is because so beauty we understand I mean another cliche beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So the fact that that beauty is very subjective, so truth is something that's objective. But I don't I don't see I think that maybe a fundamental idea of art is that beauty is not subjective. I mean, how, I never thought that, beauty was in the eye of the beholder. How, how is that? I thought it was... How is beauty not subjective? Well, if beauty were subjective, then why would millions of people want to see the Mona Lisa? It has to be objective on that level. Why do people agree on... That's the whole point. Well, there's a lot of and reasons I would, why... I would say that... I would also say, that, like, who's the greatest artist? Hold on, let's go home. God, God's you, the greatest artist. Before you go off, sorry, that's sorry. true. Before we go, no, but so let's let Mona Lisa is a great example. So there's a lot of reasons why it's a successful painting, both popularly and artistically, but that's not really, I mean, it's not necessarily a beautiful painting in every objective perspective. I mean, first of all, it's not a painting of a beautiful woman. And and, that, and you could say, some people could say, oh, well, that is a beautiful woman to me. It's, it's not a, it's not a, so it, what's beautiful about it? Is it beautiful because it's successful? It's beautiful because the brush strokes, you know, the, 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 the skill in, in which it took to make it. I mean, the, the, there well, obviously, the there's obviously point. beauty there, but it, it's not an objective. I mean, I, I'd argue that it's not an objective beauty. Mona Lisa is not objective beauty just because it's successful. Um, it's universally accepted as successful. It's not necessarily universally accepted as beautiful just by the very virtue of the fact that one of the things that makes it such great art is that it is a kind of a homely woman that's being that's being honored in that you know in that way. Okay, but that's that's a that's that's based on a certain definition of beauty uh i think the notion of to the to the degree to which truth equals beauty in art 
it's the very nature of the objective truth, which is in of itself beautiful. In other words, the balance of the balance of all of the components that make the Mona Lisa, be they color, um, um, all of the aesthetic components of art equal something true which is therefore beautiful but not but, 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 it, it but not everyone beautiful. agrees it's a beautiful painting i mean well it, it, you can find some mona lisa haters out there but yeah. the point and and you and the, i mean i picked the mona lisa but I, you could make the point for all great art that but, like but, but every, it's, what's common sorry yeah, yeah. what's common about what what <laughs> it's the it's the object it's the fact that it can, can be understood objectively as being beautiful or true you know you can interchange truth and beauty in that sense that that is what is that is how it acquires the the beauty that it has. How could that like, be? The, the, well, how could same, anything ever be way. ever be considered objectively beautiful? Well, in like a beauty tree, is like, not at all objective. No, but people say a people say a tree is beautiful. A sky, not every not to everybody. I'll give you a per, tree as a perfect example from 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 a benign example. Someone parking their car under a tree, you know, and, and the tree falls on their car or or and you know kills them. That tree is not beautiful. Okay, you know, the point. The point. The tree meaning yeah. a tree is 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 not the truth of a tree is not its beauty. The, the, you know. Right. Right. But, but okay. But again, the 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 beauty comes in the objective reality. So. A t- no one questions you. You know, some people may not like the way trees look, but no one questions that they exist. So that's the point. Well, I, the existence I think of trees, yes, we could, we could. They, they yeah. exist, and and we all. We're talking about the beauty of trees now. We're okay, not talking but, about the existence. Yeah, but I think that the point I'm trying to make between truth and beauty in the realm of art mm-hmm. is that they are interchangeable. What 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 is beautiful is that it's true. In the same way that what is beautiful about a tree, isn't like th- is that it. It's there to begin with, and I and to as an artist to be able to master the, um, to be able to master the component, the aesthetic components of something that you're creating out of nothing, in the same way. Well, I don't want to say in the same way. To be able to master them such that you the thing you create can exist in an objective sense. So that people don't question the... You're, you're the, saying two contradictory so, things. Number one, one, you're saying that anything exists just by virtue of it exists is beautiful. On the other hand, you're, you're saying that artist is someone who, who creates out of nothing, meaning, meaning who, who uh, puts into relief the, the beauty of a, of a thing. So those are two opposite things. Because if everything that exists is beautiful just by virtue of the fact that it exists... Then, then there's then there's no discernment between what's beautiful and what's not beautiful. I mean, I think most people will agree that, that in their lives they they have things that they that they that they consider beautiful and things they consider very not beautiful, mm-hmm. and 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 that's why I think that 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 beauty is not something that that's at all objective. It's very subjective, and, and that's what makes it beautiful. That's what, that's what makes it meaningful is that we're not all, you know, one just one perspective, and and we and art. Can and should mean different things to different people, and so if if you if you could point to one single thing that everybody in the world universally under any circumstance considers beautiful, you know, right, right, okay, I, okay, I think that's yeah. an impossibility. Well, okay, you know? see, I'm, I'm, and it's not when, I, when I say like an, uh, objects of nature, I'm, I'm using the analogy of 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 God as a as a, the creator as an artist, and so the the approach. The approach of creating something out of nothing. Now, like, uh, if you take like 
So that when you look at a rock or a tree, your first thought is not what a beautiful rock, but the idea that it was created out of nothing according to its own dimensions and science. Now, like if you take a look at like a certain painting by, um, you know, like a, you know, a, a, a abstract artist that your, your first thought may not be, oh, what a beautiful painting. It's not of a sunset or it's not of a beautiful woman or any of the things that we associate with beauty. But like to be able to look at it and see that it adheres to its um, visual dimensions and that it exists seemingly out of nothing because it was creative out of the artist's head. And in that sense, it when I look at paintings that are not thought of as being beautiful, I think that they're beautiful for that same reason that I think of a rock as being beautiful. So again, so it's a deeper. I, you're you're, you're, it's, you're it's, describing it's a, tough, a very subjective it, experience, and that's okay. I and mean, I, th I think it's okay to be completely subjective about okay. about your artistic tastes. And ultimately, you know the the um, you know the, the whatever. The, so I mean, mm -hmm. in, in terms of the, again going back to the the. The okay, biblical, I, going back to the biblical yeah. concept that you brought up, mm -hmm. the idea of, of and, and this is where we can approach something objective and say, when is beauty, true beauty, yeah? Mm -hmm. It's when it's found in the tense of shame, meaning mm -hmm. that there, there's a sense, there is a sense of of harmony. There is a sense sure. of right and wrong, right. harmoniousness with, with the, the rest of the world. There's something that is... Right. Um, universal that's not just the, you know so so object subjective beauty is very meaningful and but it's, but it's different things are meaningful to different people mm -hmm. when I, does I, yeah. it become meaningful on a more universal more more objective level right is when it's it's geared towards the the actual um cultivating betterment of, of let's say people's lives or or, or yeah. the the um bringing about something that that is bring into the world or, or um strengthening something in the world that which is objectively good which which are our thing which are are the concepts yeah. of right and wrong which is sure. what about what the torah is, is sure, about sure i i mean i think you're obviously you're right i think but again we're we're talking about i think the the nature of this may be um uh, difference of opinion or difference of perspective is the is the very nature of the question of pursuing a some a religious world or not a worldview because I have religious worldview but someone who lives a religious life um, uh, I mean not that I don't but you know we know what we're talking about the the, the, the problems the problem in that so I think that, that what's illuminated right. by this by our conversation is 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 that nature of that conflict is um, is a kind of can you finding truth in aesthetics is that obviously there's a higher truth of course but can you see can you find a truth in aesthetics is there a science do it do, does an aesthetic language have its own science and um, uh, language and components i think that it would and so someone who is an artist if one's goal is to work in this medium on some level even they they say somehow have to have one foot or both feet in that in that language you have to so I'm sorry, I, I and so yeah. therefore and so therefore and that 
and giving there and going there may conflict with the higher truths that one was going to learn from studying Torah. Right. In other words, why would you want? Why would you want it? Why would you want to be Hank Williams if you could be the Rebbe? Of course you wouldn't. <laughs> Well, let's look. look up. So you I, know, I hear you know what you're saying. I, mean? like, I hear so what you're saying, and because you, you're, you're speaking about the, what this example I brought up before to, of somebody. Bad, so it's Lewis. like let's say look at two extremes of people, which which again, this is a topic we hear we deal with, you know, a lot. That it's very important and fascinating to me because it, this podcast is about finding balance, mm-hmm. and you find two extremes, and especially living in a religious environment with people who are often artistically inclined, but like I was saying before, but are hesitant to delve into the into the aesthetics, into the language, for whatever reason. Um, and it's because of some of the things that we've been talking about, their, their fear of entering the darker realm, the thing, there's certain things that are taboo, the, the real dangers associated with it. But what not happens... Not wanting to think about beauty too much. Right, but not, not wanting to, to deal with superficialities, I mean, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. Because... because sure. But so that's on one extreme. You have somebody who's kind of fearful to delve into their dark side. They're fearful to delve into the realm of aesthetics out of fear of, of losing themselves, losing their moral center. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other extreme where a person has no moral center, has no interest in a moral center. And for them, beauty is truth. And and therefore, if, if something... Again, I, I still posit as very... I, I believe there's such a person. Um, and I believe that they think... You know that 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 I still say that that it's a, a statement is a lie, but for them it's true. But at the same time, at the at, you know the thing that they found that song that 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 made them cry one day, you know might might drive them crazy another day in a different circumstance when they're getting kicked out. You know whatever whatever mm-hmm. is happening in their lives when when they something's falling apart, then they're you know um, the way the way that. Uh, in Clockwork Orange, where they made the the you know he loved Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right, right, and right, then and then and then they made it they made him hate it, right, you know as a punishment. But did he still hate it, or that's the question? Or did he only he hated it because he loved it? It wasn't that he hated it; he hated it because it forced him to have a certain uh, biological reaction. Well, it turned him into a torment. It turned something that was that was something a pleasure for him, right, into something that was a torment for him. So right. my, my point, my point is, I mean, if a person loves torment, then then the, well, all, the, the, all the, but, the way that it could torment him is because he loved it. But anyway, whatever. Well, the, the, mean, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. only way right, it can right. have that meaning with him, right, sure, right. Sure, I agree. Right, but right. still, it turned from something that which could be when we associate beauty with with pleasantness, and to something that that was torturous. And so that can happen with anything, anything that in the aesthetic realm that you know whether it's it's. Uh, um, you know, right. uh, lust, or you know, it's it's a physical relationship. It's uh, you know that 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 is, in fact, marital relationships are predicated on on the, the ebb and flow of attraction. And if it were all just you know, this is a beautiful woman where you know beautiful people are going to have in the, and and it feels good to you know to have a, a marital relationship. Mm-hmm. So it's always going to be that way is a lie. We know that. So that's that's right. what I, what I mean in the same way. It's yeah. gonna it's gonna ebb and flow, and that's part of the beauty of it. And that's part of the fragility of it. And that's why this this uh, this concept of how do we protect that? How do we honor that most deeply? It's with it's with the, the tense of, of shame. It's with the places of learning the, the the learning of a moral gaining a moral center. But but again, the bankrupt moral center without the willingness to enter the fragility and and the 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 ups and downs mm-hmm. of of the dark side and and is. Is frankly ends up being kind of rigid and kind of boring, um, and not the ultimate expression of even religious feeling. Right. It, it really, it's that it's that harmony and that combination right. that we're looking for that that really 
So, so again, going back to the example, you know, if somebody who's not willing to delve into the craft of songwriting because they're afraid of where, where it's going to take them, or it, it, and I, I see or maybe part- because they, or maybe they feel as if they don't have to because they're exposed to more fundamental truths of, from Torah. Well, of course, they don't have to, but if they, but if their desire they, is to, is to yeah. write a great a, a song that 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 you know right touches people's they, hearts, they would they might want to. They they, they probably want to right. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, right. Um, they, they don't have the skills, like you're saying, the humility to understand that there's certain skills that that I have to find where they are, no matter where that I can find them. Right. And then the other other thing which I I, re- I was thinking about, which kind of is a parallel thing, I'm talking about the anti-folk mm-hmm. scene, and and I'm talking going back to Dylan, um, and I experienced this when I had my like West Village folk experience with um, Jack Hardy's songwriting um, songwriting group. Um, which was an incredible experience for me and and probably a lot of overlap with with the people there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I started going back in, um, I think it's 2010, right before Jack passed. And Dylan was a taboo subject there. Sure. It was was almost like... um, was that the case in the anti-folk scene where Dylan was like a taboo thing? He was like, he was so pervasive that yeah, you can't Dylan's even talk always, about it. Dylan's always, like that's you bring why, him up, like, oh, don't tell, don't tell him right. to talk about it. No, that's always going to happen. I've, I've, I've always tried to break that law. You right. Know? It's, what's the point? Why, why, you know what I mean? What are we doing here? You know well, that's, I mean? well, that's the thing. I think a lot of the, the people in these, for, you know, forget about the religious scene for a second. Yeah. Even people in like the religious uh, music scene. So, you know, the, meaning I say religious, like, um, religious in not in terms of a religion but in terms of of their approach to music like like the folk purists of the early 60s who uh-huh. who excoriated Dylan for for his choices uh-huh. the, that that idea that that someone will will shut down the one person who could teach you the most about songwriting right like let's not hear about him because it's it's like it's too I, I, you've, you've encountered that oh, attitude. Yeah, of course yeah, why sure, do you think sure. that that exists I you know it's, uh, maybe it's a lack of humility. It's almost like I, I that's can't part confront of it, him because you know, I'll feel so small. Yeah, you know we could we could listen to you know we could be talking about Bob, but someone's want to bring up John Prine. I don't know. I I think like it's so complicated. I mean, you know, and to answer these questions, it's so tough. It's you know, I, part of it, I think, is the idea that he's so untouchable that what's the point of even talking about it, and that you're, you're, uh, you're kind of like elevating your own skills if you're even going to be thinking about him. So there's that part of it too, which is like just keep your keep your focus kind of realistic, you know, so you like maybe us, you don't yeah. want to aspire to be, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's like saying that, you know, you want to, you're, 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 you're writing a play and that you're, you really want to be like Shakespeare right. or something. It's <laughs> be true. Like, well, okay. You know, you find, sure, this we in, don't be like, you find this in the jazz world where, you know, people like Coltrane's, atta- you know, right. saying you want to play like Coltrane yeah. or, or I mean, you walk or, in and we'll be yeah. like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm really into miles. And everyone's going to be like, all right, this guy's not right, pick, pick an influence that's a little more realistic for you. Okay? Yeah. 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 Or, you so know, I, but I think that land the, all your cars on the table right away. Then when you're talking about the downside of that is, I think what ends up, especially in, in like you're talking about in a younger stage, is that people end up closing them? They they buy that. Maybe there's a good reason to have that that sense yeah. of of like this is too big sure. to to aspire I, to. I also think but, but they end up yeah. they end up um, 
making a, a, putting a, a barricade into the actual real learning. He, he has a real person. He's a real person that, yes, he achieved a lot. But the fact is you can learn a lot more from him than you can from an average songwriter. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and I think once you get past that like taboo of like, oh, he's too great. You know, Shakespeare's too great to right. to learn to write plays from. I think there's another thing with Bob Dylan, too, is that there are, there are multiple Bob Dylans. And, and when it's hard to know... It's hard to know what Bob Dylan, an individual, may be talking about when they talk about him. Yeah. And for so, but unlike Shakespeare, Bob Dylan does have a he has a commercial popular persona, which which is really the operative Bob Dylan for most people. You don't think who, Shakespeare has a commercial persona? Um, no, no, well, again, like no, because he was <laughs> he didn't live in a commercial world. I mean, he's he's lived right. hundreds of years ago, so he doesn't. You know, Bob Dylan has a he has there is the there is the quote unquote Bob Dylan that so that is the you know the guy in the sunglasses from Sing Like Rolling Stone who sings in a unique way. I'm not going to do the voice, but right, everyone right. knows who you're talking about. So right. so there is a kind of sense of like, well, who are you talking about? Are you talking about like the like the, the cliche Dylan, right? But I, I think so I think there is, I think there is, a, there is a parallel in Shakespeare with that. There's the cliche Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. It's like this hoity-toity British, you know. Sure. Um, you know, kind of stuffy right, right. literature. Sure. You know. Okay. Yeah. So there is a like there is a uh, there's a reluctance to to take that like that you know very kind of surface d- dealing thing and say oh, well I, that's what I'm that's what I'm going for and everyone's gonna kind of. So there is maybe like maybe part of it is like a gatekeeper thing. Like if mm-hmm. you're gonna bring up this guy, like if you're gonna bring up Miles or someone as a jazz guy, you have to prove your you have to prove your uh, your salt to some degree before you even go there. So a kind of like, you know, hold, hold off, slow down. Like we're not talking about, we're not talking about the elephant in the room. We're, we're trying, like maybe you can if you're, once we've established some kind of lines of communication. Right. So, you know, so, do, you, so yeah. do you feel like that that's useful? Um, uh if I were to talk to someone that I that if I were talking to I don't know if I were talking to a songwriter and they and I had never heard their stuff and like and they maybe like I didn't know what kind of music they were doing and they started bringing up Bob Dylan I I would probably like them <laughs> I, I think it's necessary in terms of just social discourse and people's yeah. you know preconceptions I, I think, but I don't think yeah. it's I think it's important to cut past that to actually get to the craft and to what you can actually learn yeah. I was trying from, to figure out why why it exists but I, I agree that I it exists from some I, I yeah. think for ultimately superficial reasons I, I agree and I agree. and when you when you dig, dig a little deeper and you realize that like you start to get into what what is songwriting what is the power of songwriting you know what how can I utilize that in my own unique voice mm-hmm. You start there's there's I mean there's a lot there's a lot of great songwriters out there I mean I think Dylan's you know right up at there at the top of the the heap and and certain things about songwriting that I, I pinpoint as as a path of as a songwriter and really it 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 kind of sp- spills over into the mystical and I know Dylan was very um, he d- he didn't like to be labeled on on those you know those mystical terms you know prophetic and this and that. But I really believe that ultimately, and this is, it's not just, because it's not just about him, it's about anyone who, who sits down to write a song, that they, they, they're, even if they're not in touch with it and it's not, they're not in touch with the deepest power yet, but the potential is to channel something 
that's is unique to them but mm-hmm. is also universal mm-hmm. and that does have a prophetic even in a small way mm-hmm. I, I even in a psychological way like I, I know that you know I'm very careful what lyrics I sing even by by other artists and it's funny because most of Dylan's stuff I have no problem singing I, I feel like it, it really because I feel like what you sing but you may not sing becomes, walk on the wild side is what you're saying Right, but, right. What you sing man, it becomes manifest. I mean, you see sure. so, so many songwriters, and you look at their story. I mean, you know, the, the how many? I mean, you look at their story and how it played out, and you look at their songs, and you're like, you know, for example, I mean, how many songs did John Lennon and Kurt Cobain write about guns? <laughs> Mention guns. Many. Interesting. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know. That, yeah. You're you're onto something. In fact, that. It's that this book I'm reading is is it kind of, he kind of goes there. I think ultimately he's saying that Dylan does exist in a moral, he exists in a moral universe as a writer and as a um, kind of individual. And I think I think what you're saying is really true. Like there is, uh, it reminds me of something in Torah. Of like there's Torah goes to great lengths to avoid like an ugly word because an ugly mm-hmm. word it's it's it. It would it would deface the sanctity of what's being written, and that's that's something that's true in life. You, yeah, know, but you if pass you, so over something, you use you use um, you don't say the word that is is would be uh, right. disgraceful. But there's an exception to that in Torah, which is that if it's necessary for action, you need to name things clearly, even if it's an right. O- only mm-hmm. when you're describing something that that's not. Like when it talks about the the impure animals, it uses a couple extra words right. to describe the impure animals that rather than calling them uh, unkosher. Right. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't say. It's, it right. It doesn't say that they're in Hebrew. It doesn't say that they're um, the word would be you know um, either either us or you know or, or a tray for something. It doesn't say that they're. But not that that's not. Those aren't the problem. Those aren't the exact words. One by one. That they, they, uh, tame. Tame is the yeah. word, it, which means impure. Right. Um, and then the the word that the Torah uses is, is they they are not pure in in a tahor. Sure. So so but that's only describing animals that existed in the past. But when you're describing something that that's present and that you need to avoid, it says this is tame. <laughs> Stay right. away from it. Right, right. So this is impure. Right. So the, the so the you know when you, when you have words that so again I think Dylan he crosses over and, and any of us can learn from that especially in the times that we're living in the times that are that are basically redemption times the world is unfolding that we have this opportunity and this responsibility to as much as possible live our upright lives mm-hmm. and as artists to to connect ourselves and others to a higher truth so you listen to you know I remember I was um you know there, there's certain resonances and Dylan's style of lyrics especially his his um I mean my favorite Dylan album is still modern times and there's a certain style in those lyrics, which is kind of stream of consciousness, which ha- which alternate between very concrete images and very abstract and, and abstract uses of those concrete mm-hmm. concrete images. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has this this in uh, uh, Nettie Moore, the song Nettie Moore. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, you know, judges coming in, everybody rise, lift up, your, lift eyes. up your eyes. So, I I I was listening to that for the first time on my way to court huh. and that song comes on and I was, and I was, it was, I was in court for, you know, um, back then, like, like uh, divorce proceedings. It was very, very stressful, very fearful. What's going to happen. And, and I'm driving to court is when I was living up in Woodstock 
driving to Kingston and that lyric came on and it, it took me out of this like what could happen the judge could decide it could be awful things so like you know I, I that at that moment I got out of that lyric judge coming in everybody rise lift up your eyes like the judge is is just a a conduit for it for a divine plan and I, and I don't have to I don't have anything to worry about sure, and and, right. and I, don't, I don't you know that's not the only meaning of that verse but it, for me at that moment it was like it was such a, a help to me it was like it was, like, it was almost like calling someone for advice and like yeah don't you know but it was it was much deeper than just sure. someone giving you advice oh don't worry it's all from you know <laughs> sure sure interesting and, yeah. and I and I love songs it's interesting to the connotation of of judge set next to lift up your eyes at yeah. that moment the judge takes on a a um a certain aspect whereas i glanced into the chamber and the judges were talking darkness was everywhere it smelled like a tomb right. at that point the judge takes on something more sinister perhaps yeah. so the two natures of judges or those who judge well yeah. they, but they have th those two th that that's from the 70s that's from uh, isis uh, right no that's no. um the day of locusts on uh, new morning oh right right, right. no new morning yeah. right early but it's the the, the um the idea of, of the modern times has a, has a certain flavor of, and maybe that time in his life and where he'd come to, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of that kind yeah. of uh, references to a divine reality, to a higher order. Sure. Whereas I think in, in a lot of those earlier songs, there's a quest, there's a questioning, um, you know, particularly Day, Day of the Locust is, is not, um, right. So, so, we say the say the lyric again. Uh, I glanced into the chamber. The judges were talking. Darkness was everywhere. It smelled like a tomb. Right. 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 So then I um, I stepped up to the stage to get my degree. Right. 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 So um, when I had my the guy next to me, his head was exploding. Head was I was exploding. afraid the pieces, pieces would were... fall over me. Right. right. Uh, so, right. So that 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 uh, is a, is a completely different kind of song. In a totally. way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No. It is. It is uh, completely. It's hard to know what he's actually talking about. Whereas in uh, all the songs of modern times are, I think like if you look at that record from a lyrical, just a song construction perspective, it's it's just flawless. I mean, it's yeah, just so it's great. You know, you know what he's saying, but he's saying it beautifully. He's in control of of what I think. Like the only the maybe you know, I'll throw out that maybe the only thing on the level as far as just pure like intentionality of the songs would be maybe blood on the tracks just in terms of both being able to say say what you mean but also make it rich full of um parallel meanings just uh you know but right, you, so you know what the songs are about you don't have to be like well what is this song about you know but that there's a balance between literal meaning and um, abstract imagery. And this is what I love. It's, it's wide open to subjective experience. And, and that, I think more, you know, as, as someone goes deeper into the songwriting craft, and I know your, your songs, uh, you know, have, have an element of that as well, that, that open, you know, there's lyrics that can be very, that can be very um, fixed and kind of clothed. And there are ones that 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 are that are wide open that you you know it's a, I saw this in, in this um, art theory book is actually in, in a form of a comic book it's called the I think it's called the Art of Comics if you by Scott McCloud amazing book I, I totally recommend checking out it it's basically it's an it's a, a journey into into art theory but through the through the art of comics but he goes into like art theory in general mm -hmm. and how it might apply 
And he talks about in terms of comic art, he does this whole spectrum of realistic drawings on one end and very cartoony, like peanuts uh, type drawings, like a circle and a couple of eyes and a squiggly for hair on the other end. And what he pointed out, which is something that's apparently well known by comic artists or visual artists or storytellers, certainly storytellers in that medium, is that when when someone is encountering uh, a realistic image, it's very objective, like it's some someone other. But when they're encountering, the more cartoony it is, the more it's it's a stand-in for yourself. And so, uh-huh. I, and I, I feel like lyrics can do that too. Like sure. if you can write in a very a very um, literal way and you're kind of looking at some objective thing and it can be beautiful it could be great right. or then you could write in some very I'm just calling Dylan's lyrics cartoony but but in have the same concept it's it's very mm-hmm. much of a sketch of something that is, is put together as a face right. rather than being a real representation of a face totally. and therefore you see yourself in it more right right I think that where we're going um, is talking about the nature of poetry and when you're talking about songwriting you're talking about uh, you, you know, I was always a fan of poetry growing up. And um, I think like what, I think Cohen said that, you know, the, you know, Cohen was a poet, Leonard Cohen. And, you know, with Bob Dylan, it's like you're saying that this guy is a singer and a musician and he's a poet. So that's really what cooked me. And, uh, you know, but the nature of poetry, the nature of, uh, I mean, I was always a fan of Allen Ginsberg. Um, talking about dirty words, but uh, <laughs> the idea that like that you have as a, as a speaking person who has access to language that you, there is a there is a um, you have access to a series of images and um, archetypes that reflect a f- internal spiritual sense of the universe i didn't say that very well but that what poetry is is a kind of like an evocation of um of the soul on some level and so there's there's something inherently spiritual and religious about it and therefore moral because it's dealing with uh, the natures of humanity and um, and 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 when you combine them with song I mean you get you know the songs of the Torah the songs of Miriam David David was a songwriter and um, and and thinking to the conversation we were having before about whether how to pursue art as a religious person maybe songwriting is a great vehicle because it deals in language fundamentally it's it's a way it's a way to it's a great medium for a someone who's both on an artistic and a spiritual quest in life um because because of the nature of language because you can say something you don't have to paint it or Mm -hmm. dance it or say (laughs) it through notes you can say it through words and what does it say that the universe is created with language? So, um, and there's, and, uh, and, you know, well, there, the, 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 what you say and what you not say, what you don't say, like what you said, like certain words you shouldn't say. And so it's what you, what is said, what isn't said. Right. So I think one thing you said, it's, I think it's something to the effect of, you know, it, it reaches somewhere deep in the soul and therefore moral. 
and, and I, I mean, right. I, I think I think j- just to, to put that in context, like this is the the you know really great theme that we've been talking about, which is I, I don't necessarily agree with that, that that just because it's deep and it's meaningful it makes it moral, but it it can be it, and and and, it, and, it, and it, meaning if it's deep and meaningful it's it's powerful it has the power of transformation it has the power of deep connection it doesn't necessarily make it moral but well maybe not moral in a good sense but it suggests morality it, it suggests it's such some it says some kind of morality suggests, not necessarily a good morality no it suggests the nature of morality fine right, but but, right. It, but i'm saying if as a religious person or as a person who's interested in in um, the, who, who wants to, to who appreciates the concept of right and wrong in this world, which I think is becoming more of a mainstream concept. It used to be mm-hmm. just a fringe, right. you know. And there's there's like a battle some of people, ideas some raging. Some people care about right and wrong, but I don't know who they are. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm paraphrasing what right. someone would would have thought. There, there, there is like a, a battle of ideas raging right. in the world, where where on one side there's this completely idea of like there is no right and wrong. Everything's um, more morally subjective. On the other hand, there is an you know, which is the Torah perspective, which there is an objective right and wrong. Right. Um, and I think in order to kind of, there is a truth to that. There is no right and wrong, which is what we're talking about—that artistic truth. Artistic. So to combine those two, when you're so when we're talking about lyrics and and. And I, b- I believe that music, that lyrics aren't just like poetry set to music. You know that that the music sure. itself has has uh, obviously has a bigger part in that. But the um, the idea of aligning that deep connection, that deep exploration through somewhat abstract, somewhat archety- archetypal images, when that's not necessarily explicitly preaching a certain moral truth, but nevertheless aligned. With, with moral truth and that's why I get from much of Dylan maybe not all but certainly a lot of it um, yeah. th- I, I, I get this this alignment yeah you know I mean? and, and also metaphor I mean the you know uh, you can mean the idea that you can mean many things in the same mm-hmm. by saying the same thing what, what is the line uh, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind right that means any number of things it means both what it means literally but it also you can extrapolate it to many different scenarios um and and so like poetry being can can have different faces you can say that one word you can say one line and it can mean multiple things right so so th- but then 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 you're saying that so to clarify the idea of um yes things can mean a lot of things but then there are certain things that means something and that I don't want to mean, I don't want that part of my life. You know, again, I, I did a recently did a deep dive into Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. Yeah. And I really learned a lot from his story. Like I do when I, I study any, any, you know, um, artistically successful musician, whether they were commercially successful or not, but in his case, he was both, but there are some, his songs. I won't, I won't sing them because I, because I, because th- they are inviting, I believe they're inviting a, a very horrendous, experience in reality which i think he experienced the, one of the best examples of that was the song i don't even want to say it um rape the rape song oh yeah sure sure yeah sure. so not a not a fun not a song not a fun sing, song sing around sing, sing around and he had a purpose fire. in writing the song but like for a person to sing that i believe that's conjuring something sure and you know 
you know, it, 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 whatever. So you no, know, you know what I'm saying. Of course it is. And You're so right. I, I personally would avoid that. Would that would be what I consider to be lyrics that are not necessarily aligned with moral truth that I, that, that no. I value. Sure. You know. Right. Um. I, and and uh, even if it's tongue in cheek, and even if it, even if it's it's sarcastic, and you know, and I, it's I saying I deeper think, things. I don't think you know? he's concerned with moral truth. No, I don't think. And nor well, do I think that oh, that. Well, no, that's not entirely true. But, but well, right. But I don't know. But I. You not, know. not not ultimately. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and I also not sure that. I, you know, with with Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, I don't, I, I don't know what's great about the music is necessarily like the lyrical content necessarily. I think that he had it's like, one dimension. It's one. It's one important dimension of the music. It is. Yeah. I mean, he was he was more interesting than his peers. I think that he was on a. I think that he was on a, um, a path that he hadn't. Uh, you know, I I think his artistic development was cut short. Obviously, I think that like. You know, when I, I when I watch Unplugged, I, I I imagine that if he had stayed alive, he would he would come to be a songwriter like a Neil Young or something. Yeah, well, he he I, actually that, said that in one path. of his last interviews. Uh, I, I don't want to do too much deeper dive, but we should wrap up now. But I, yeah. but I, I maybe in the future we, we were you know, not going on for two hours. <laughs> uh, we're almost at two hours. Part, uh, the, part the, one. The, the um, you might split us up, I'm but good. the. the yeah, but, no, but I, I, I do. It is something I, I plan in the future to do a deep dive into into him. Is like this is great that we were you know talking mostly about Dylan, but in general, I'm not but, sure that deep diving into Neil Young is quite as deep, but or that's possible. Oh, as as Bob, well, yeah. you know, deep dive is a rel- right, right, is a relative right, right, term right. depending on where you're where you're diving. Sure, sure, sure. But the right, but right. The, but ultimately, the the idea of, um, you know, some someone like. Uh, you know Kurt Cobain, who I believe was was powerful, and music was powerful, and was interesting, and was channeling something very deep and true. But because he himself wasn't, you know, his perspective on life defines that that the way that channeling is coming in. So therefore, sure. it was powerful, but not necessarily um, aligned the way I, I view it. You know, a lot, but um, sure. Sure. You know, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said about that, and I've, I, yeah. you know, yeah. a lot of, yeah, a lot yeah, of positives yeah. of that story as well. Yeah, I mean, oh no, no this yeah. is what I was gonna say. I, for, I forgot to, I mentioned um, that one of his last interviews, and one of the reasons, again, this is why I want to avoid going too into this because I, his the whole the whole murder conspiracy thing with him oh, was one of the things he said. Well, right, without going without going into that, <laughs> the one of the the things that he said in his, one of his very last interviews, in which, by the way, he was very positive and very relaxed, that, that one of the things he said, he, he looked forward to growing old like Johnny Cash and, be, and being like an old songwriter like yeah. Johnny Cash. So, yeah, yeah I, so I, I agree with you that it does look like that when he's doing the, the Unplugged, that he was like heading I think, to yeah, that. I always yeah. feel, I, I just think it's a great shame for our generation that we were deprived of kind of an elder statesman, uh, of our, a musical elder statesman like him, that we would have, some of, we were deprived of, having him as a kind of a you know a, a light post just as a you know like a, like a Neil Young type guy like an old, like an like an older uncle or something I think he was, I think he was contem- I think m- not, more than Neil Young to an extreme degree Kurt Cobain was contaminated by a morally represented reprehensible outlook on life it wasn't just about him it was about the culture that that he was connected to yeah um and I think Neil Young had a little bit more older traditional values, even though he Without challenged them to a certain degree. Without and, a doubt, yeah. And that's why he's had more longevity. Um, but this, this self, this, you know, whether whether it was a literal suicide or not, there's certainly a suicidal tendency in terms of the, um, the you know, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the the, the anger mm-hmm. against um, something traditional, which is which everybody ends up growing into, you yeah. know. Yeah. And either either you come to peace with it, um, or or you know you just you rage against it until you you blow up. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. It's true, and I I just do think that my my image of him is always in New, uh, a public in New York. I, then and I have this feeling that like he was, and I'm not. I'm not the world's greatest fan or anything, but I, I do feel like he, even though the content, even though he wanted to still ha- be full of hatred and pain for the world, like just the very nature of that show, it seemed like he, he, a stronger part of him was going towards like, I'm just a guy with an acoustic Absolutely. guitar and, Absolutely. And, and all of the implications that 100%. that brings and that like yeah. he would have grown into a... Mm-hmm. To me, I always just had that strong feeling like he would have grown into a, an, an older songwriter, and it would have he would have been great. Had you know? had he so. had he been able to to gain a, uh, some guidance and a moral compass, yeah, yeah. But if it, he was in a world that just that just devoured him, you know, it's just some. Yeah. But uh, you know, listen, Turner, it's been really incredible. Yeah, it was having so much you. fun. Yeah. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna link to as much you know we, we you know you, where you people can find you and your music. Um, and hopefully we can, can do this again. Sure, we could do part like two. part two, part two, or you know, <laughs> part three. We can pick another, pick yeah. an artist. I mean, we can probably always go back to Bob. You know, <laughs> that's a well we've, we've barely skimmed the surface. Inevitably. But cool, man. And when um, so your new album came out? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, my single came out, and then uh, I have another single coming out, and then um, the whole record should be out in two, three weeks. So the single is the Wee Wee Hours, right? The Wee Wee Hours, yeah. That that's. Uh, it reminds me of the the Chuck lyric Berry? from the no for uh, oh. well it was Professor Longhair did Professor Longhair oh. cover Chuck Berry or Chuck Berry cover Professor Longhair I I, I in the re- night yeah I was reminded of the of the Chuck Berry song he says in the wee wee hours yeah. he starts off I love it yeah, yeah. so it's a cool <laughs> yeah. so I, um, yeah I'm definitely gonna check out more of your music and what other people do um, cool man cool so until next time yeah thank you thank you in of morning you bear your soul in the jet black places of midnight your heart is a call we are leaning towers we are cruel and evil cowards in the Dangling all
the wee wee hours by turner cody from his album the duke of decline turner was nice enough to send us a vinyl single copy which we just listened to and you can find that song and many other recordings numerous albums by turner at his page turnercody.bandcamp.com I recommend checking it all out. There's a lot of great music to explore there. I want to thank Turner again for stopping by the studio for the conversation. Once again, consider supporting us through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. Remember, abundant singing and playing of music will bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.